0: Thank you very much for that. Welcome. You know, I, I never get welcomed anywhere else like this, but um, to be to be fair, it's a bit, you know, I'm a bit suspicious because when I arrived, I was welcomed and said, yeah, we were told about you, this old guy is coming. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, an old guy is who I am. And I, you know, I used to dandle Philip on my knee when he was a little baby and <laughs> things like that. But no, it's great to be with you as part of the, the, the church family and, and it's great to be family with you. And, um, I think it's really significant to be here on Remembrance Day. I, I've been just very torn up about the world, and maybe you have been as well. Maybe even part of the reason why we're here is because we we think the, the world needs some answers. It's the best right now, isn't it? I mean, when we look at what's going on, the horrors of, of Israel and Gaza, the 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 intractable position of Ukraine and Russia, the sub-Saharan conflicts that are going on Yemen. And then on top of that, we've got... You know, a, a world that will not cooperate on climate change. And we've got, you know, food poverty and water poverty. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenging old old world to be part of, isn't it? And we need some answers and we need some wisdom. And, you know, this is, I've got this book here. It's a good book. It's the Bible. I like a proper one that you can scribble in, you know. And, uh, uh, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And we want to look at some wisdom tonight from Jesus, who is the wise one. He is the Wonderful Counselor, that's one of the titles of Jesus. The one, If you want to get wisdom, let's come to him. And, and Jesus once um, gave a sermon. Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's um, really famous. It's in Matthew's Gospel. We find it there in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, um, and it's, a, it's, it's great. You know, and many people around the world have, have read those words, have been inspired them. People like Gandhi or Tolstoy. The challenge is it's really hard to put into practice. Really hard. I don't know how many people have tr- have tried really hard to live the Christian life and follow Jesus, follow His example. Yeah, you know, a lot of you have tried. Maybe some of you are just beginning that journey. Maybe some of you are further on. But honestly, it's quite difficult. I mean, being good. How many people find it hard to be good? I find it easier to be bad than to be good. I don't know why that's so, but I, I do. And um, and I, I, you know, I've got a conscience, and I've got a wife. Those two things really help me. But. Um, it is, it's, you know, it feels sometimes like you're living against the tide, and the tide isn't just out there; it's also in here. There's things in here that stop me being good. And when I read the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says, he says some really radical things. Now, to be honest, the Old Testament is pretty radical. You know, actually, if the in the Old Testament, the, the what we call the law, the Ten Commandments, the the law of Moses, all that kind of good stuff that you find in the first books of the Bible, it's quite tricky itself. Even an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is quite tricky, isn't it? You know, how do you really kind of um, just make it okay with people? How do we resolve conflict? And and there's a lot of challenge in, in the Old Testament about how we care for the poor and um, and, and how we, you know, we, the Ten Commandments don't covet, don't don't be greedy, don't be don't be envious, and um, it's, it's it's in itself is quite challenging, isn't it? And I think well. It's quite hard to live that. In fact, there was a time in the New Testament when some church leaders in this early church are having a council and they're trying to work out what to do with people who are not Jews who want to follow Jesus. And say, so, Well, shall we make them obey the law? And one of the the church leaders stand and said, Look, guys, we can't even keep it. And <laughs> we're good Jews. How can we how can we expect the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, to keep the law? But when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus takes the Old Testament stuff and kind of amplifies it, you know, turns it up to 11. It's kind of, Jesus says things like "You've the law of Moses, you've heard it, you've read it, it says, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't look at a woman lustfully. He says, we've heard it said, don't murder. I said, don't even be angry with your brother. In fact, if you call someone Raka, which is a, an Aramaic term of contempt. Isn't that you're guilty of hellfire? It's kind of like, he's ratcheted it up. Gosh, we, we thought the Old Testament was difficult. What about the New Testament? That's really hard. Really hard. I mean, we can love it. We can think it looks great. But to do it is really tricky, isn't it? So I want to take us back to the beginning of the sermon because it's really important to get the beginning right before we try and unpack all the other things. And the sermon... Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. begins in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read it to you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he goes on actually, so if we can run on a few more, is that all right? All right then. But um, there are nine of those blessings. And, and the first one, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a really, really important place to start. That's where I want to start tonight. So if I was going to give you a kind of um, you know, popular kind of well-being lecture tonight, and say, OK, guys, you know, there's a lot of, of, of anxiety in the world. There's a lot of um, mental health challenges around us. So how are we going to help our mental health? Well, it'd be great to be poor in spirit, wouldn't it? That is not the kind of advice you expect to get from a well-being counsellor, is it? Is that the kind of, expect, the kind of advice you, you expect to get from the Son of God, the wise one? Oh, be poor in spirit. Actually, the, the, the word um, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed is a translation of a Greek word makarios, which means fortunate or happy. You know, actually, you're fortunate if you're poor in spirit. You're fortunate. So, really? Because on the whole, people who've got a poor self-image, who don't think a lot of themselves, we think, oh, gosh, you could, you could do with some therapy. Is that, is that how it is? So what does it really mean to be poor in spirit? There must be a way of understanding this a bit more. Um, what, what is Jesus really getting at when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, that little phrase, it's linked with a description. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. It's a a description of someone. Can you think of anywhere else in in the New Testament where Jesus says, these people have got the kingdom of heaven already. They're not waiting until they die. They're not waiting for some great event. They've already got it. You know? Exactly. Thank you, Kate. Jesus once said, you know, let the children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to them. So maybe there's a link between being poor in spirit and being childlike. In fact, Jesus told people to become childlike. He said, you know, unless you become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's something about that. And it seems to me that the that to be poor in spirit, to understand that, is to... Not be self-reliant. That is one of the characteristics of, of children. I've got five kids. I've got three grandchildren, two more on the way. Very exciting. And I, I, love, um, I love my little grandchildren. And um, I go and collect them from, from school once a week. It's one of the best parts of my week, you know. And, uh, but, but actually, they need me. They're very dependent on me. They're very dependent on their mum and dad. There's something about being a child which means we're dependent on our parents. We need nurture, we need guidance, we need provision. We can't do it ourselves. And maybe that's a clue to understanding what it means to be poor in spirit. I'm going to unpack this even further just by reading another bit of the, the New Testament. This is from Luke's Gospel. This is a story Jesus told. He says those were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told the, this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a very religious person. The other, a tax collector. That is somebody who the rest of his community think is an outcast because he's somebody who cooperates with the Romans. He's there involved in collecting money on behalf of the occupying power. So he's a bit of a traitor. He's also creaming off some of that money for himself. So he's unpopular for all kinds of reasons. Anyway, not welcome in, in good religious circles. So the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He's been listening to Metro online. He's been learning about tithing and fasting. Um, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, lifted up. So maybe that's a clue to what it means to be rich in spirit or poor in spirit. The Pharisee lifts himself up. He bigs himself up in his own I'm pretty good. I, I can keep the law. I can do this stuff. You know, look at me. Look at the way I tithe. Look at the way I fast. It's great. The tax collector, you would say, is poor in spirit. He doesn't value himself. He's just asking for mercy. In a sense, he's throwing himself on God's mercy. God, no one accepts me. I feel bad about myself and everybody else hates me. What can I do? There's only one place I can come to you and if you have mercy on me, maybe I've got hope. He's poor in spirit. But he's the one that Jesus said went home justified. I think it's not dissimilar to the 12-step program. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the AA or other kind of 12-step programs where um, people who are caught with an addiction are trying to get sober, trying to get free, trying to get help. And the first step of the 12-step program is to admit that you are powerless so that you can open your life up to a higher power to Do what you can't do. I've tried to get clean, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed. I've lied to my mother, I've lied to my partner, I've, I've you know, I've abandoned my kids, whatever it is, you know, I've done it and I've failed. I am powerless. Help me. Step one, admit that you're powerless. That means step one is you're poor in spirit, and if you're poor in spirit, that is actually fortunate for you because finally you will get some help. I would say that. That is the foundation of the Christian life. That's why it's foundational in the sermon. To be poor in spirit knows that you need help, but to have confidence that you have a helper. That like a child, you have a Father in heaven who is good and who is for you and wants to shape your life and input your life so you can be the very best person you can possibly be. And he's committed to living that life that you can't live on your own. With you, because you see, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be in partnership with God, not to be doing it all by yourself. To do it all by yourself is to be religious, and to be religious, you keep the rules and it is hard work, and you can tend to shrivel up and be quite judgmental of other people. But to be poor in spirit is to say, I want to live my life with you, living your life in me, because I can't do it myself, so I'm coming empty. But when I'm empty, I can really be filled. Filled with your life. You're living your life through me and with me. And as you do that, so I, I change and I grow and I am being conformed to your life. I'm becoming more like you. That is the Christian life. That's why it starts. Big sermon. Start with that place. Because it's only from that place that you can begin to do the other things. And when you do the other things, this is the amazing thing about the Christian life. Commands become promises. Instead of you shall not commit adultery, command, it's you shall not commit adultery, promise. The Christian life is where commands become promises. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used around the Ten Commandments implies there's a possibility that you'll be able to to do this. The the, the command actually is a promise. And and in the life of Jesus, the, the very things that could condemn and crush us because they feel like a command that we're always breaking now become the possibility of a way of life that we're entering as the Spirit enables us to live it. And so forgiveness becomes possible because we've somehow entered into the economy of the kingdom of God. And um, as we know how much we've been forgiven, the overflow of that enables us to forgive other people. And it, it, there are so many examples like that. It's kind of like uh, you know, giving becomes not just a duty but becomes a pleasure. Because we have been given so much, we we feel like we can't give, We've got to give this away. It, it becomes exciting to do that, and and it, the Christian life isn't meant to be like a heavy burden of law that you do. It's meant to be a partnership with the Father, and that's why as the, as the sermon I might carries on, it kind of undermines and subverts the religious practice, which is all about the externals and looking great. You know, the Jewish society that Jesus was um, born into and lived in. Was one where you know you got you got kudos looking religious, you know. So people used to pray in public, so that people oh they're holy, and if they were fasting, they would make themselves look really ill. (laughs) They kind of kind of wear their worst clothes and they go oh how are you oh not so good I'm fasting today. You know I mean it's kind of they because it, it looked kind of you know holy to be doing that kind of stuff. And in, in in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, when you when you're fasting, don't tell anybody. Just do it with the Father. It's gonna be fun. Do it with him, for him. And by the way, look your best. Look really cheerful. When you give to the poor, don't go shouting about it, tell everybody what you're doing. Do it with the father. You're, you're partnering with him. This is gonna be great. Let's see who we can bless today. That's the spirit of it. It's kind of we're gonna do this stuff, Dad. Let's go and do stuff together. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was my hero. And um I used to love going off with my dad. And, um, you know, we, we had an old Volkswagen, a uh, Volkswagen? Yeah, we had a Volkswagen. <laughs> it was a new Volkswagen. And my, my dad brought this VW van home, split screen, brand new, scraped it on the gatepost, coming in through the door. First time, first day he had it, anyway. But, um, and we lived in the Lake District. And my dad, part of his job was to cover the whole of Westerland and Cumberland, as it was then, because I'm really old, but Cumbria now. And and we'd go off on a weekend in that van, and I'd go off with my dad, and we'd walk up the hills and we'd camp out. It was great to be with my dad. He was adventurous. He was funny. He was really, he was really brave, and would talk. You know, he, he could talk to anybody. And actually, I discovered that my sons like being with me. I've got four sons, and uh, when we hang out, we, we, it's great, you know. And we, we used to, when they were young, we did dads and lads adventures. But I still try and do a, you know, go off with them once a, a year at least, you know, and have some overnight time with them one on one. But, but God's like that. He's like the best father, the best father, and wants to do great stuff with, with us as kids. So let's start from that place. Let's say, God, I know I need you, but that's not a, that's not a disaster. In fact, it's a blessing. I'm fortunate when I know how much I need you because that's when I can start to really come to you and get your grace and mercy in my life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is my remembrance day kind of, Really, because Remembrance Sunday is a time when we collectively do some thinking about the horror of war. I, I just was thinking as I was on my way here earlier this morning, I was thinking about war because I read the news and there's wars going on right now. The most painful one is the Israel Gaza conflict. That's so painful, isn't it? There are 2.2 million people in Gaza. A million of those people are under 15. We know even you know, from, the, from the stats that have come out of um, Gaza, as far as we know, uh, 4,500 children have been killed in the conflict so far. Children should never experience war. Actually, human, be- it's not natural. We should not accept that warfare is part of the human experience. It should not be. And, uh, you know, we all know our history, or we, we, we remember our history, don't we? Today, we remember the First World War, the Great War, is it called? The War to End All Wars. It's been so catastrophic. So many millions have died. We must never go to war again. Let's start the League of Nations so it will never happen again. In 1918, 1939, World War II. It was horrific. The United Nations. It's formed let's mediate so there will be no need for war again let's let the nations come together why is it that we accept conflict that we accept the ideological hatred of one another between our nations that we that we as a world community kind of do not work harder at peacemaking by the way blessed are the peacemakers is in there isn't it and the next one after that is, I'm blessed are those who are persecuted. I wonder if you get persecuted if you're a peacemaker, because you're trying to bring people together. Everybody hates you. But, um, but there's something about that. But it's, it's really hard for us to do kingdom life. But we've got to do it. You know. And so today, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Now, mourning is not a state that anybody is, is really wanting to, to go into because mourning implies loss and pain and grief I was talking with someone this morning and I'd not met them before it was my first meeting with them and they, they were struggling in our church meeting this morning and they, they just said to me in January my brother took his own life and I wasn't there for him and, and the, the grief and the pain and the guilt very, very live." For them. We all know people, or we've experienced our own losses, um, and uh, I've, I've had a fair amount of loss and bereavement in my life, for sure, and the longer you live, the more that becomes real. And it's painful. And sometimes grief is a very, very lonely place. You have heard Martin a few weeks ago talk about his own experience, Martin sitting over here about loss, about his son being killed in a awful hit-and-run accident and the impact of that on, on, on Martin and Rachel and it can make you go inward, it can make you pull away from your community even I and mean, it actually sometimes it's hard for us to approach people, who we don't know what to say, we feel our words are, are going to be useless so we don't say anything and and people are left on their own. So mourning, grieving, it can be a really lonely place. Jesus is speaking about a comforter coming to mourn. Coming to those who mourn, a comforter. What's it look like? Who is the comforter in, in the Bible? There's a, there's a word for somebody in the Bible who's, who's, who's got this title, the comforter. Anybody know who that is? Holy Spirit, someone said that over there. Thank you so much. Yeah, Jesus, before he died, and bear in mind, he was going to go through his own agony, and he's going to leave a whole lot of lost, bereaved people. And he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, lost and bereaved. I will ask the Father. He will give you another comforter. He will come to you. He'll teach you everything. I've, he'll remind you of everything I've taught you. He'll be with you. Um, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit, the one I just said we had to have in our lives so that we could live the Christian life, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Now, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, actually understands grieving. In fact, God understands grieving. You know, every now and then we kind of think, well, it's all right for God. God's up there. He's all right. He's not affected by all the suffering that we go through here on planet Earth. Does anyone ever think like that about God? It's all right for God. He hasn't got flesh and blood like we have. He doesn't feel the sort of pain or loss that we have. He's, he's all-powerful. You know, my theology of God is simply this. Well, not simply this, but this is some of it. God is love, right? I think the truest thing to say about God is that he's love. And I think the truest thing to say about love is that love involves suffering. It involves lots of good things, but it for sure involves suffering. I think to love gives you the capacity to suffer. It's interesting, in the old King James Version of the 1 Corinthians 13, famous discourse on love by the Apostle Paul says, love suffereth long. Love is long-suffering. We translate that as patience. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is long-suffering. But there's something about suffering and love that go together. If you love someone, you grieve when they're hurting. One of the most intense periods of grief I ever had in my life Was when I came on my newly married, just a year or two into marriage, got married really young, so in in my 20s. My wife, uh, Tina, she lost her mum when she was 12 years old, and she still was grieving for her mum, you know. And and, um, and as I came in and found her, just a a little intimate moment, just kind of like sobbing for her mum, I just felt physical pain in my belly that I'd never felt before. It felt like I was sharing in the grief. I'd never met her mum. But I was sharing the grief of someone that I loved. You know, I think God does that. I think God shares in our grieving. And this is why I think that. I think the Bible tells me that. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that God looked at the world and saw that the evil in men's heart was, the inclination of men's heart was only evil all the time. He looked at the violence of the world and it pained him to his heart. God, the Father, looking at creation, looking at this fresh world that he's made, seeing it full of this human race that were made in his image, being violent towards one another. I mean, the the broken story of the human race, Genesis talks about, you've got Adam and Eve, then the next generation, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and it grieves God to his heart. I've got Jesus. John 11 talks about Jesus at the graveside of a man called Lazarus, who he was going to raise from the dead in 10 minutes. He's gone there to raise him from the dead. But Martha and Mary are in the position of loss. If you'd have been here, they said, my brother would not have died. And Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And it's because Jesus understands grief and he's with us in it, even though he knows that one day, down the line, when it's all over, when the last word is God's last word, there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. But while we are in this place, in this broken world, in this world that is not fixed yet, in this veil of tears, God himself weeps with us. And Jesus demonstrated that by weeping with those who wept. And in the book of Romans, we're told, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And Jesus also wept over Jerusalem on his way to his own sacrificial death on the cross, He weeps over Jerusalem because he sees its torment, the fall of Jerusalem in the Roman Empire. I guess he saw Gaza. He saw all of it. And he wept. Because Jesus grieves too. And the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who is in us, alongside us, our Comforter, he grieves too. There's a famous passage in the New Testament, written again by Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8. And he talks about uh, prayer in that one, and he talks about the fact: oh, we cry out from a deep place by the Spirit, "Abba, Father." We do. the cry out that. But he also talks about the pain in creation, and he says that even we, and he's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church, he's talking to people who follow Jesus, he says even we, you've got the first fruits of the Spirit, we 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 grow, we long for the adoption of our bodies because we haven't got it all yet. We've got the first fruits. We've got. God is with us. We've, got, we've tasted something of this kingdom of God, but yet we still all this brokenness. It's still not finished. And until it happens, we're grieving. We don't even know how to pray, but the Spirit himself who searches the deep things of God groans with, with cries deeper than words. He says creation is like in the birth pangs. It's in pain. But as we're experiencing the pain of creation, and we groan, the Spirit of self groans with us because he really knows how to grieve. You know, there is a a gift of the Spirit to help us to mourn. And the reason we mourn and are comforted is because we're no longer alone in our mourning. And the person who is grieving and mourning with us knows about grief and the depths of it better than we do. It's been my experience from time to time to come to a place of prayer and encounter the pain that's in the heart of God. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. But, you know, I go to a prayer meeting, I'm a bit detached. You know, I just go and I show, I'm going to pray, because that's what you do as a good Christian pastor. You've got to pray, otherwise you get sacked. And um, and I'm in that meeting, and then suddenly I'm gripped by the Spirit of God, and I start to catch a bit of the heart of God. And it's painful. We, sometimes, we, we sing a worship song which says, break our hearts with what breaks yours. That's a real song that we sing. And what it implies is that God feels pain more than we do. And we have to catch some of what God's indignant about, what God gets stirred up about, what God's angry about, what God's grieved about, and identify with him and let his Spirit help us so that we don't keep withdrawing, so we don't get compassion fatigue, so we don't back off, but that we can stay in that place. And, and, and the kind of the, the, the mourning and grieving that we have can be something that is a vehicle for the kingdom of God to come. And I don't know what your reaction is to what's going on around the world today and what's going on in, in Gaza in particular. You might want to just distance yourself from it. I think I just can't cope with it. I just don't want to see the news anymore. It's just too painful. It might be you want to do protests and maybe you're up in London yesterday with those three hundred thousand people marching through the centre of London. Or it might be that you're just really conflicted and you think, Well, this is unspeakable what, what happened and when's it going to end and all that stuff. But I think what God is calling us to do is to mourn, to grieve to cry out, how long, God, may, must this go on? How long can we as the communities of, of this world allow this level of hatred? Why are we not working at being peacemakers? Why are we not wanting to stand in the gap? Why, why have we allowed this to happen? Where's our collective responsibility? We're all responsible in, 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 in the nations, you know? The British, we, we've got some big responsibilities around the mess that's in the Middle East right now. And, and what we should be doing, I think, is mourning and grieving, saying, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on that we find this stuff in us. What is it that's in us that makes people go and butcher families as an act of terror? What is it that makes us so dehumanized that we will drop bombs on apartments where kids are or whatever? You know, it's, there's a whole lot of stuff there, isn't there? And we've got, we've got to grieve and mourn, I think. We've got to say, we're sorry, God. This is what we're like. And we need, we need your help. We need the kingdom. As I come into land, just two things to say, you know, to be a follower of Jesus, to partner with Jesus, to see his kingdom come, is to be like him. Was Jesus poor in spirit? Yes, he was. I'll tell you for why. When Jesus, the Son of God, left his Father's presence and his eternal being and came, flesh and blood, to live with us, the word became flesh, it says in John. Then he laid aside his power and became vulnerable. And he said about what he did, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. The Son can do nothing by himself. He emptied himself, the the theological word is kenosis, he emptied himself of things about him doing it and said, I'm just going to trust my Father in this one as an example to us of what it's like to follow the Father, be people of the kingdom. Was Jesus someone who mourned? I've already said he's, he's a Jesus who mourned. So when we embrace this life, this kingdom life, which takes us to the highs and lows, it helps us to live life more intensely, more richly, where we can really learn to come alongside the hurting places in our world and be Jesus, hands and feet there. We're following him, but we're also partnering with him, and we're imitating him. And that's what you're being called into, actually. You're being called into this life of following Jesus, imitating Jesus, but being filled with Jesus, so that you can actually do it. And if that's something that you're up for, I'd love to pray for you tonight. Maybe as I finish, I'm going to invite you. If... um, you identify with what I've said, and you're saying, I think I get it, and this is, I, I, this is a life that I'm willing to be called into, or to go deeper into, and I just invite you just to stand with me, and, and maybe just put your hands out as an empty, oh, unless you come and fill me, God, I'm, I'm, st- I'm in trouble. Is that all right? So, if you'd like to do that now, no pressure to do that, just stay in the seats if you don't do it, but if you want, like pray, I'm going to pray over you, and over me. Those beatitudes, those fortunate sayings, they include things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who, fortunate are those who are poor in spirit. Lord Jesus, you see us standing before you now. I'm standing in the same boat as someone who needs your grace, who needs your mercy, who needs your spirit. Unless you come, I back off from the challenges of life, and I compromise And But when you come by your Spirit, when it's all about you, not about me, it's amazing what happens. So I want to say, come, Lord Jesus, and will you rest on each one of us tonight? Will you give us your Holy Spirit? Will you fill us with your love, with your power, with your grace? Will you help us to do what only you can do? In Jesus' name. Amen.